Excuse me. So last week, we took a look at Genesis 3, 7 through 13, and we began to unpack and discuss some of the immediate consequences. And we're going to continue to talk a little bit more about that today. But I, in, in, in the way of review, want to go back and read Genesis 3, 7 to 13 real quick. But before I do that, I just want to ask, how's it going with the Bible reading? Great. People keeping up? Yeah? Awesome. Okay. I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's been good. It's been interesting how it's connecting to things here and how it connects to things that are going on in my life and things that are going on in the life of the church. If you haven't started yet and you want to jump in, we're in Acts. You can get uh, an outline on how to do that. I believe there's some in the back. They're also online. If you go to uh, unordinaryconversations, all one word, dot org, you can get the link on there to click to get the PDF that has the guide of the reading. And then there's some commentaries on there, some different blogs. And uh, I post something on there once or twice a week. People come on and they ask questions or make commentary. So I'd love for you to be a part of that process as well so we can extend the conversation about what we're reading outside of Sunday morning and outside of our individual study do that together online. So if you'd like to be a part of that, I'd, I'd ask you to join me there as well. So let's take a look at Genesis 3. Starting in verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this thing that you have done? What is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Last week, I told you there'd be three parts to this segment. Uh, today, we're going to cover the last two, but I wanted to, to, again, briefly hit last week because last week and this week are going to connect. So the main thing we talked about last week was that the fact is that there will now be a complete change in the created order. Everything was going to change. If you remember Genesis 1 and 2, God created man and woman to live together, to, to rule, to steward the earth, and to multiply. Instead, one of the created order, the serpent chose to defy God, and then he tempted Eve and won her over, and then she and Adam took and ate and did that thing that they were told not to. Adam was complicit in this. It wasn't just Eve's idea. Adam was there all along, standing by, giving silent affirmation and agreement to what was happening. We're going to talk more about that next week. The outcome of all of this, though, we discovered is death. The, the promise that God made, if you eat from the tree, the result will be death, came to be true. To be without God, literally separated from God, which is life, leaves no other state but death. Adam and Eve have now become spiritually disconnected from God. The, 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 the spiritual death part is something that God is striving through Christ to rectify. To bring us back to himself. But we know that the physical death is out of the box. We're all headed in that direction. 
The spiritual connection is something that can be rectified through Christ, but the physical death that would be uh, coming will not necessarily be instantaneous. It's not like they ate and they died immediately. But the tree of life was removed from the garden. Well, actually, they were removed from the garden. The tree of life remained, but they were barred from eating it. While the physical death suffered by Adam and Eve wasn't instantaneous, this whole idea of physical death was now on the table. You remember we talked about the two special trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that the Lord God said, do not eat. If you eat from it, you will die. And then there was the tree of life. We talked about the fact that there was a prohibition to eating the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there was no such prohibition on the tree of of life and that God was giving them a choice choose to be your own God choose for me to be your God which one did they pick (laughs) choose to be your own God they chose to be their own God they chose the wrong tree the option from the tree to eat from the tree of life was taken away remember the choice was this be God on your own or live with God forever so here's what it all boils down to. God wanted us to have eternal life with him. That was his, his preference. That was his plan. He didn't force Adam and Eve to his plan. He gave them free will. He gave them free choice. And he gave them real choices to make. You know, as a parent, it, your children don't learn anything if you don't give them real choices. The choices God gave Adam and Eve had real weight, didn't they? They weren't just like, choose the red apple or the green apple and, you know, you get an apple. It was choose life or choose death. Choose yourself or choose me. Choose to, to, to grow in me and to be connected with me and to walk with me and to, to, to live forever in this beautiful place that God created. Walk with him or be separated to be your own God. God still wants us to have eternal life with him. He wants us to have this connection. He wants to still give us a choice. And while the cost we learned last week for Adam and Eve of choosing the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had a terrible price attached to it, we also learned that the price of coming back to God through Jesus Christ had a terrible price attached to it. But that price was borne by God himself and Jesus Christ. God giving his only son, putting him on this earth, allowing him to walk through this life, to suffer, to die at the hands of the people that put him to death, to go to the grave. That moment when he went to the cross and he carried the sin of all men and God turned his back on him, he turned away from him and and Jesus cried out in pain because the presence of the Father had been withdrawn from him. That was what he had to carry for us. So the pain, the, the cost of, of the possibility of being reunited with God instead of being born by Adam and Eve was now born by God the Father and His Son. If we're dead in sin, reconnecting with life itself through Jesus Christ, the curse of death is broken. Remember we read in, in John where it says, In Jesus, in Him was life. And that life was, uh, was the light of men. It's the reverse of what happened in the garden. It's exactly 
putting everything back. If we choose to live disconnected from God, all that remains death. But if we choose to live in Christ and Christ comes to live in us, then we're brought back into that spiritual connection with God and the spiritual life connection that we can have with the fathers restored. If we, in the words of Christ himself, believe in him, not, remember, a mental ascent, but a heart change ascent, if we change our life, if we believe that what he says is true, we will no longer be in a state of death, but in a state of eternal life. And so, in essence, not only does he put the spiritual connection part back, he also undoes the eternal death, although this body will die, the Spirit will live on with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for eternity. So we've got two more points here to cover. That was, that was, that was last week in a nutshell. We bring last week's together with this week's. You remember our first point last week was the complete change had come in the created order. This week our first point is this. This moment would be the beginning of of broken fellowship between God and man. Up until this point, you remember, God came in the, in the cool of the day to be in the garden in the, in the not just spiritual presence, but somehow physical presence of God in the garden that Adam and Eve could somehow see or sense. It was a palpable presence of God. He would come and be with them in the garden. That was now going to be broken because of the fact that their eyes and their hearts had been opened to the knowledge of good and evils of good and evil one of the things that happened is they experienced for the first time the realization of shame and guilt did anybody struggle with shame and guilt <laughs> shame and guilt isn't that like that's like what it is to be human in, in a lot of ways shame and guilt was not part of god's initial plan it was, it was an outcome of the choice to be my own God, to make my own judgment on what is good, what is evil, what is right, and what is wrong. Adam and Eve realize now they are covered in shame and guilt as a result of their defiance to God. Adam and Eve have realized that they were naked, something that was supposed to be beautiful, something that was part of God's perfect plan to be in the garden together, male, female, and naked. I know it's a weird thing to talk about in church, right? But it's in here for a reason. There's a purpose that we need to see here. Let's continue in Genesis eight, uh, 3 and read uh, 8 through 10 and see how this informs the continuation of our process to discover a, a solid worldview based in the Bible. It says this, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sexuality and nakedness were supposed to be something beautiful, something God created to be perfect and wonderful and natural and shameless and not that kind of shameless, <laughs> shame-free, <laughs> right? Something beautiful, something that we probably have never experienced 
the way it was intended. What was to be an open gift enjoyed in the same way that we enjoy the beauty of a night sky or the beauty of a mountainscape or the beauty of wild animals living in their natural habitat. This was part of the beauty of God's creation. The naked human body now becomes a shameful sight, something that we cover, something that must be secret, something that must be hidden. Genesis 3.11 says that God asked them a question. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? He knew immediately. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then God in his benevolence, if you go down to verse 21, it says that knowing he was going to cast them out, he realized those leaves probably weren't going to hold up that he made them suitable clothing, says the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, and for his wife, I'm sorry, for Adam and his wife, garments of skin, and he clothed them. God in his benevolence, realizing the leaves weren't going to, they weren't going to cut it, used skin. Well, where do you think he got the skin from? Death enters the perfect creation of God's garden. And God himself takes something he created, kills it, gets the skin from it, makes clothes for Adam and Eve and clothes them. Can you imagine the shame and the guilt Adam and Eve must have felt at that point? I wonder if he like did it right in front of them. You ever done, as a parent, it's like your, your kids have done something wrong and you're like, okay, we're going to fix this. You're going to come with me. We're going to do it together. You're going to watch while we make this right. You're going to fix this. We're going to fix it together. I don't know if God said, hey, Adam, you come watch this. Look what has to happen now. I don't know. But just like that, what was meant to be beautiful, what was meant to be public, the human body itself, the pinnacle of God's creation. You remember the human body was created in what? The image of God. Right? God made everything else just out of his mind. He just like... I'm just going to make stuff, whatever comes out, elephant, platypus. I mean, he had some crazy ideas, stuff we could have never thought about, mammals that lay eggs. I mean, it, it, everything on its ear, right? Whatever. But when it came to humanity, when it came to humans, when he envisioned in his mind's eye, Adam and Eve, he used a pattern. Remember, it says he created Adam and Eve in the image of himself. And now God's highest order Creation is shameful when it's naked and it's guilty and it becomes a source of shame before ourselves. Some of us don't even like to look at ourselves in the mirror, let alone let anybody else see. In the same way that the prohibition against eating fruit from the tree gave way to temptation. You remember we talked about that. God said, don't eat the, the fruit from the tree. Somebody says, don't walk in the grass. And what do you want to do? You want to walk in the grass in the same way, now the human body becomes that because it's covered and it's secret and it's private. And the prohibition against eating the fruit is given away now to the prohibition against seeing each other naked. And the shame and the guilt remains. This pattern of curiosity, temptation, and failure that Adam and Eve fell for in the garden for the tree, now we struggle with as humans, as men and women. 
the pattern of curiosity, temptation, and failure about other people's bodies now occupies our minds. What was beautiful in public is now private and shameful. What God made good is now twisted by sin. This has given rise to every kind of perversion and indecency and sin and things that, that could only come up from the mind of a perverted, twisted, sick mind. All kinds of things we could never imagine. And not only would men and women now hide their physical bodies from one another, they would also hide themselves from God. What was the first thing they did? They took some leaves, made clothes to cover their shame, cover their nakedness. And then when God came walking, what did they do? They hid. That perfect connection, the spiritual and the palpable physical connection that they had with God in the garden was now separated. Now they covered themselves from one another and they hid from God. There's no way back into Eden at this point. You can't undo the loss of innocence. You can't unsee something. Ever tried that? You can't unsee something. You can't undo this. You can't uneat the apple or whatever fruit it was and put it back on the tree. The next point here, and these two connect, is that the relationship now between humans will be strained and difficult. Not only was there going to be a broken relationship between God and man as we're cast out of the garden and we're separated from him and that spiritual eternal connection is broken until Christ, now relationships between one another become more difficult. Don't say amen, husbands or wives, but it's true. In Genesis three eleven, the first part of the verse, God says, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then in 12 and 13, the guilt the, or the, the blame shifting begins, right? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. The Lord questioned the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And this begins this cycle of passing the buck, this cycle of, of pushing the blame downriver. While we tend to read this passage and we see some humor here and we laugh about it, the truth is that this is where we're at today as people. Do you see what's happening here? There's this overwhelming response from the creation to say, it's not my fault. You ever said that? You ever heard that? <laughs> right? It's not my fault. It's not my fault. How many times have you heard these words? The response to that points to an underlying tendency that is rooted in broken humanity. The way we react to things that happen, it's not my fault, points to this, this idea that everything I do wrong is someone else's fault. Do you feel that vibe in our culture? Do you feel that, that underlying sentiment in our, in our culture, that, that, that system of belief even in our culture, that everything that happens and everything I do wrong is someone else's fault. The sentiment here points to the real problem, and it's this. Our guilt and shame inevitably results in this, self-justification. We want to justify ourselves. This is the problem. We're identifying what the problem is here. 
that we want to justify ourselves. Do you ever have arguments with your spouse? Parents with children? No, you guys are good, good. You know, some of you are like, no, we never argue. Oh, everything's wonderful. Do you ever struggle in that argument or in the resolution of that argument with the, the really strong desire, maybe telling too much here, to justify what you have done? You know you did something wrong, but you try to justify it. Well, I, I, I know they did that thing, but, but here's why. I did it because whatever. Anybody? Yeah. Everybody, just put your hands up. Adam attempts to justify himself by blaming Eve. What he did was wrong, but he blamed Eve. Eve attempts to justify herself by blaming the serpent. The serpent has no one to blame but himself. The, 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 the blame shifting and the self-justification starts immediately. Isn't that interesting that as soon as sin, as soon as the door was open for sin to enter into humanity and that relationship and connection with God was broken, that immediately self-justification begins. Adam attempts to self-justify. Eve self-justifies. But the only hope for us is not in self-justification. It is in the... It's in Christ. The justification we need is found in the life of Christ. Self-justification will never be enough. Self-justification only serves to underline this, the fact that we think we don't need God. Did you know that? When when we're trying to self-justify ourselves, it is in essence saying, I can do this myself. I can justify this myself. I have the resources to save myself. This is self-idolatry that we've been talking about just in a different flavor, restated in a different way. It's saying this, I can be my own God. I can judge for myself what is good and evil, and then I can save myself by justifying my actions and my attitudes. If you listen carefully, you can hear the voices of self-justification in our culture today. I wrote, I wrote a bunch of them down. Um, how about this one? It's my upbringing. You ever heard that? It's a way of justifying. It's my right. It's my parents' fault. It's your fault. It's my surroundings. I don't have enough money, resources, or privileges. I have too much money, resources, privileges. I was born this way. I'm just doing what makes me happy. He started it. She started it. It's because of your race. It's because of my race. And it goes on. And it goes on and on. And all of those things and, and many others are just self-justification restated. I want us to take a look in Luke 10. It's in page 506 in the Pew Bibles. And we're going to read a section here and see how Jesus addresses this idea of self-justification. Again, Luke 10, page 506. We're going to start in verse 25. And we're going to read through 37. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, him being Jesus at this moment, saying this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
He said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But look at the next sentence. But he, desiring to justify himself to Jesus, said, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite came to the place, saw him, and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on an animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and what, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. <clears throat> the man wanted to justify himself. Isn't that interesting? In an attempt to justify himself, he questioned Jesus. And Jesus told him this story. And what I want you to see from this is that the solution to self-justification is found only in Jesus Christ. It's found only in Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. Who was merciful of those three men that passed by? Who showed grace to the man who was injured? The one who loved him, the one who cared for him, the one who bound up his wounds, paid for him to, to stay somewhere until he became well. That picture, that story is a parable and it points to Christ who did the very same thing for us. A people will pass us by left and right with no help. Christ came to help us. Christ came to love us. Christ came to pull us back into that relationship. He came to share grace and mercy and love with us. That we might not have to justify ourselves, but that our justification before God could be reliant upon Christ. Take a look at Romans, and we'll see how this is spelled out. Paul writes about this in chapter 3. It's in page 548 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses... 21 to 26, where it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. Did you hear that? Not by your self-justification, not by our excuses or our attempts at making what we did sound like it was the right thing, but we are justified by the grace of Jesus Christ through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former, shin, over, over former sins. Listen to this last part. It says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The only way we can find any justification for anything we've ever done wrong, well, you can't. <laughs> you can't. All of our self-justification would never be enough to justify anything we've done wrong. Only Christ can make us right before God. Only the filter of Jesus Christ in our life, when God looks down at us and he sees there's a, a mediator, a stand-in, when he sees a Christ who was a sacrifice for us and on our behalf and we have believed in him, not again with the mental ascent, but the heart ascent, when he sees that Christ is in us and on us and we're sealed, the scripture says, with the Holy Spirit, he sees us through that filter of Christ and he justifies us based on what Christ did for us, which was to carry guilt and shame and sin to the cross. Because something has to die in order for sin to be forgiven. It's, it's a, a biblical principle. In the Old Testament, they would put animals to death. They would, they would go to the temple. They would bring an animal. The blood of the animal and the sacrifice of the animal would cover the sins of the people. But it was something they had to repeat over and over and over again. When Christ came, he was the for once and all sacrifice. That would never have to be another sacrifice because he was the perfect sacrifice in that he was God's son who lived on this earth a perfect life, a blameless life, a sinless life, not a temptation-free life. He was tempted as we are in all things, Scripture says, but he was able to stand up against it. It's interestingly enough, it says in Scripture in the same way, he'll give us a way to stand up against everything that comes at us. Did you know that? says, under everything that happens to us, he'll provide a way out. We just have to watch for it. We have to look for it. We have to be ready for it. We have to be willing to accept that way. But Christ is the ultimate justifier. The one who has faith in Christ is justified before the Father. We're going to take a look at Romans 5, 1 through 11. That's in page 549 of the Pew Bibles. Romans 5. 1 through 11, it says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, this is if we know Christ, if we have believed in Christ, if we have, with a heart assent, followed Christ, not just a mental understanding, but we're following Christ. We've given him our all. We've turned away from our way. We've stepped away from our sin. He has taken it. He has washed it. He has carried it. He, we have crossed over from death to life. The old is gone. The new has come. That's what he's talking about here, the new creation the people who are in Christ. Therefore, since those people, we who have been justified through his faith, it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an important passage because right now, Adam and Eve, in this point in the story, do not have peace with God. If you don't belong to God and he hasn't, he hasn't filled you with his Holy Spirit and you haven't been saved by the belief 
in his only son, you're not at peace with God. You're at war with God. And there's a battle for supremacy. Who's going to be the, the, the proclaimer of truth in this relationship? You or God? Who's going to be the one who decides right and wrong? You or God? When Adam and Eve took that fruit and they ate it, they were declaring a war on God. A war on peace. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Wow. That's an amen moment right there. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also, as if that weren't enough, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, while we were unable, completely unable to even reach out to the Father, to even do anything to save ourselves, to justify ourselves even in the slightest bit, when we were completely unable and weak, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person he would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loved you and I. That while we were thumbing our noses at God, while we were proclaiming our own truth, while we were running the show and justifying ourselves, covered in shame and guilt, Casting stones at everybody else around us. While we were still horrible, terrible people. <laughs> That's what it says. God sent his son to die for us. God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, do you see how it connects with the beginning? This is one of the reasons I love to go back to Genesis and study this, because it all connects to Christ. Christ and the gospel are a thread that run through the whole Old Testament and the whole Old New Testament from the beginning to the end. And without parts of it, the rest of it don't make sense. Without understanding what happened in the garden, what happened on the cross, doesn't make any sense. This leaves us with a personal question for today, based on what we've talked about for you to ponder. How are you justified? What kind of justification are you trusting in? Are you trusting in a justification of your own making? I'm a good person. I'm, 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 I'm pretty good. I can get the scale out 
and I can put the bad I do on one side and the good I do on the other. And I think the good outweighs, so I'm going to justify myself by saying I'm more good than I am bad. Trusting in that today? Anybody trusting in that? that, that there's, no, there's nowhere about that in the Bible. Self-justification of, of any stripe, of any color, of any flavor is never going to fix it. How are you justified? Are you trusting in your own self? Are you trusting in your own voice? Are you trusting in your own position or your own attitude? Again, this is simply idolatry of self. Saying that I can proclaim my own good. I can proclaim my own truth. And after I do things, I can justify them myself and save myself from my own decisions with my own justification. Or are you relying upon Christ? Have you come to that place where you have said, not my will, Lord, but yours. Not my way, Lord, but yours. Not my shame, <laughs> not my guilt, and not my sin, but all of that on the cross with Christ where he died for me. He went to the grave. He, he, he stayed there three days. He rose again, and he was victorious over sin. He was victorious over death. Are we trusting in that? That's the justification that will save us. In fact, that's the only justification that will save us. Everything that we're dealing with today, everything we're dealing with now as individuals, as married couples, as families, as employers and employees, as Americans, as humans, all goes back to the beginning and that initial fall and that initial rebellion. It all comes down to what happened in the garden and the showdown with Christ. Sounds like a movie, doesn't it? That's why I picked that title, The Rebellion. Sounds like Star Wars. But we're not talking about the dark and the, the light. Remember, they're not equal opposite forces. God wins. The creator of all things who spoke them into existence with his word, wins. Why would you be on any other side? Why would we choose any other way? I'm just going to encourage you, if you're self-justifying, even just a little bit, even if you're a new creation and you're walking in Christ, but you get into a fight with your spouse, I'm guilty of this. Do I ever do that, Lydia? Do I ever justify? Oh, no, I say I put her on the spot. She's like, oh, I can't believe you said that. We were just talking about this this week. It's insidious. We want to justify ourselves. Even though we know we've done something wrong, we want to like, well, it wasn't that bad because I was really, this is what I was thinking, this is what I meant, this is what, you know, and it's like, does that really do anything? Are we doing that to God? Well, God, you see, it wasn't really that bad because I was thinking this and, and something good came out of it, so it was probably okay and... Are we doing that with our relationships here, these, these horizontal relationships? Are we doing that in our vertical relationship with the Father? We have to stop trying to justify ourselves. We're unjustifiable. It can't be done. Only the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, can justify you and I and all humanity. 
this can encourage you as we pray in a moment. Just be, in fact, we're going to be quiet for a minute. Just go before the Father. Confess. <laughs> Con, uh, there's so many things I could say to confess. You know what they are. I'm just going to let you confess what you need to confess. The fact you're trying to control it, maybe. The fact maybe you're trying to justify some things. You should just say, you know what, I'm sorry, those were wrong. God, I haven't been completely forthcoming with you. I've, I've tried to hold on to some stuff and, and, and it's all yours and I'm just going to turn it. But whatever it is, just give it all to him. Maybe it's in a relationship, one of these, these horizontal relationships between husband and wife, kids, children, employers, employees, whatever. Parents, children. They say, hey, I've been trying to justify myself and, and, and I'm sorry. I was wrong. That was hard to say. Can, can you guys say that? You guys don't want to say it. Let's try it. I was wrong. wrong. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? Ah, louder with more cheer. I was wrong. <laughs> I know, right? That's a tough one. Just go to the Father and say that. I'm going to be quiet for a moment, and then we'll pray. Father, forgive us for our attempts to be our own God, our attempts at self-justification, our attempts at declaring our own good and our own evil, our own right and our own wrong. Forgive us for treating that which you created as throwaway stuff, as unimportant things maybe even as unimportant people or unimportant relationships. Lord, teach us to be able to say, I was wrong, and just let it lie at that. Lord, we've been wrong before you. Lord, forgive us for our attempts to justify our actions and our words and our deeds before those that we have these horizontal relationships with, the people that were here on this earth, our husbands, wives, children, families, kids, parents, coworkers, neighbors. Lord, forgive us for our attempts to justify. Lord, Lord if there are, are any attitudes or relationships or, or things that are specific to our individual lives that we need to go address and we need to go talk to somebody. We need to go tell them I was wrong. Lord, point those out to us. Show those to us today, Lord, that we might leave this place, make a phone call. We might talk to somebody this week and say, hey, you know what? I've been wrong. The Lord, also in that vertical relationship with you, maybe, maybe there's someone here they've never, even, they've never even said before to you, I was wrong. And that's really what coming to faith in Christ is all about. Coming to the Father, coming before you and saying, Lord, I was wrong. I've sinned. I've done all the things you said not to do because I tried to say they were okay for me. I tried to proclaim my own good. I tried to, to justify my actions. But Lord, I see today through your word, through the Holy Spirit, through Christ's life, 
that I'm just justifying myself. Lord, forgive me. Right where you're at in your seat today, you can just say, Father, forgive me. I believe in the name of Jesus Christ and that he died and that he went to the grave for my sin and he rose again. As scripture says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That broken relationship will be brought back and made whole again. Lord, make relationships in this place today whole again. Lord, maybe we look back and there's some relationship with you that was five years or 10 years or 20 or 30 years old and we've been walking with you in this relationship but we've we've wandered we've strayed a little we're self-justifying we're we're a new creation but we've we've gotten rusty because we stopped listening to you or we've neglected you or we're forgetting to to read your word and let it soak into our hearts and uh things are coming out of our mind and our mouths and our hearts lord that are that are ungodly and they're 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 dishonoring to you, Lord. Forgive us for those things. Lord, I, I pray that all across this room, anybody here today, Lord, that's, that's in that state can just come before you today, Lord, and say, Lord, I've wandered. Lord, I've, I've, I've stepped away a little bit. I, I've, I've slipped into that cultural morass of, of, of all the justification that's going on, and I've kind of let that cloud the way I, I, I relate to you and I relate to my brothers and sisters. God, forgive me for that. God, thank you for reminding us there's no justification before you other than that which is found in Christ. Lord, thank you for washing us, for cleansing us, for looking at us through the, the filter of Jesus Christ, the mediator, the stand-in, the sacrifice. Lord, thank you for bearing the weight of that pain that suffering is you sent your only son to do that which we couldn't do for ourselves. Lord, your perfect son, who you placed all of the sin and the weight of, of despair and shame and guilt for all humanity and all time, you placed that on him and you turned away from him and he took it to the cross. Lord, thank you for that act. Our failure has caused you pain, but you did it because you loved us so much. Lord, I pray today that we will, we will remember that. Then we'll give it all back to you. We'll lay everything at your feet. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says you want us to be a, a perfect sacrifice, but also a living sacrifice. One that comes and places everything at your feet. And then in turn, you change us. You change the makeup of the way we think and the way we act and the way we conduct our relationships horizontally and vertically. And you make us into this, this new creation that's perfect and that's pleasing to you. Lord, do that in our hearts and in our minds. Renew us today to walk in the light of your Son, Jesus Christ. Make us your mouthpiece, your hands and your feet. Lord, as we look to the village, we look to the city that we live in, and some of us don't live in Elmwood Park, and we look in the villages and the cities and the places we live, Lord, help us to see with your eyes. The world is trapped in this Genesis 1, 2, and 3 curse. And the only solution is Jesus Christ, who is life. And that life is the light of men. Lord, help us to bring that light into the dark places. 
Lord, again, we pray for the hearts of people in Elmwood Park and in other villages and towns around here where we live and where we work and where we play, that you will use us as hands and feet to bring the gospel to bear in the lives of people who so desperately need to know you. Lord, it's in all of these things that we pray. You are just, and you are the justifier. Lord, we thank you for your Son, Christ, and for your Holy Spirit that fills us and marks us with a seal, showing that we belong to you. Lord, and it's in all of these, Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, that we pray today. Amen. Please stand together.